0: Part three of Tale two of Five Tales by John Galsworthy This Librivox recording is in the public domain Recording by David Wales When Bob Pillin emerged from the little front garden of twenty three Millicent Villas ten days later, his sentiments were raveled, and he could not get hold of an end to pull straight the stuff of his mind. He had found Mrs. Larne and Phyllis in the sitting room, and Phyllis had been crying. He was sure she had been crying, and that memory still infected the sentiments evoked by later happenings. Old Haythorpe had said, You'll burn your fingers. The process had begun. Having sent her daughter away on a pretext really a bit too thin, Mrs. Larne had installed him beside her scented bulk on the sofa and poured into his ear such a tale of monetary woe and entanglement, such a mass of present difficulties and rosy prospects, that his brain still whirled, and only one thing emerged clearly, that she wanted fifty pounds, which she would repay him on quarter-day. For their Gardy had made a settlement by which, until the dear children came of age, she would have sixty pounds every quarter. It was only a question of a few weeks. He might ask Messrs. Scriven and Coles. They would tell him the security was quite safe. He certainly might ask Messrs. Scriven and Coles. They happened to be his father's solicitors. But it hardly seemed to touch the point. Bob Pillan had a certain shrewd caution, and the point was whether he was going to begin to lend money to a woman who, he could see, might borrow up to seventy times seven on the strength of his infatuation for her daughter. That was rather too strong. Yet, if he didn't, she might take a sudden dislike to him, and where would he be then? Besides, would not alone make his position stronger? And then, such is the effect of love even on the younger generation, that thought seemed to him unworthy. If he lent at all, it would be from chivalry, ulterior motives might go hang. And the memory of the tear-marks on Phyllis's pretty pale pink cheeks, and her petulantly mournful, oh, young man, isn't money beastly, scraped his heart and ravished his judgment. All the same, fifty pounds was fifty pounds, and goodness knew how much more. And what did he know of Mrs. Larne, after all, except that she was a relative of old Haythorpe's, and wrote stories, told them, too, if he was not mistaken? Perhaps it would be better to see Scrivens. But again that absurd nobility assaulted him. Phyllis! Phyllis! Besides, were not settlements always drawn so that they refused to form security for anything? Thus, hampered and troubled, he hailed a cab. He was dining with the Ventners on the Cheshire side, and would be late if he didn't get home sharp to dress. Driving white-tied and waistcoated in his father's car, he thought with a certain contumely of the younger Ventner girl whom he had been wont to consider pretty before he knew Phyllis, and seated next her at dinner. He quite enjoyed his new sense of superiority to her charms, and the ease with which he could chaff and be agreeable. And all the time he suffered from the suppressed longing which scarcely ever left him now to think and talk of Phyllis. Vintner's fizz was good and plentiful, his old Madeira absolutely first chop, and the only other man present, a teetotal curate who withdrew with the ladies to talk his parish shop. Favored by these circumstances, and the perception that Ventnor was an agreeable fellow, Bob Pillan yielded to his secret itch to get near the subject of his affections. Do you happen, he said airily, to know a Mrs. Larne, relative of old Haythorpe's, rather a handsome woman? She writes stories. Mr. Ventnor shook his head. A closer scrutiny than Bob Pillan's would have seen that he also moved his ears. Of old Haythorpe's? Didn't know he had any, except his daughter and that son of his in the Admiralty. Bob Pillan felt the glow of his secret hobby spreading within him. She is, though, lives rather out of town, got a son and daughter. I thought you might know her stories. Clever woman. Mr. Ventnor smiled. Ah, he said enigmatically, these lady novelists, does she make any money by them? Bob Pillan knew that to make money by writing meant success, but that not to make money by writing was artistic, and implied that you had private means, which perhaps was even more distinguished. And he said, Oh, she has private means, I know. Mr. Ventnor reached for the Madeira. "'So, she's a relative of old Haythorpe's,' he said. "'He's a very old friend of your father's. He ought to go bankrupt, you know.' To Bob Pillin, glowing with passion and Madeira, the idea of bankruptcy seemed discreditable in connection with a relative of Phyllis. Besides, the old boy was far from that. Had he just not made this settlement on Mrs. Larne? And he said, I think you're mistaken. That's of the past." Mr. Ventnor smiled. "'Will you bet?' he said. Bob Pillin also smiled. "'I should be betting on a certainty.' Mr. Ventnor passed his hand over his whiskered face. "'Don't you believe it. He hasn't a mag to his name. Fill your glass.' Bob Pillin said with a certain resentment. Well, I happen to know he's just made a settlement of five or six thousand pounds. Don't know if you call that being bankrupt." What? On Mrs. Larne? Confused, uncertain whether he had said something derogatory or indiscreet, or something which added distinction to Phyllis, Bob Pillan hesitated, then gave a nod. Mr. Ventnor rose and extended his short legs before the fire. No, my boy, he said, no. Unaccustomed to flat contradiction, Bob Pillan reddened. I'll bet you a tenner. Ask Scrivens. Mr. Ventnor ejaculated, Scrivens! But they're not—then, staring rather hard, he added, I won't bet. You may be right. Scrivens are your father's solicitors, too, aren't they? Always been sorry he didn't come to me. Shall we join the ladies?" And to the drawing-room he proceeded a young man more uncertain in his mind than on his feet. Charles Ventnor was not one to let you see that more was going on within than met the eye. But there was a good deal going on that evening, and after his conversation with young Bob. He had occasion more than once to turn away and rub his hands together. When, after that second creditors' meeting, he had walked down the stairway which led to the offices of the Island Navigation Company, he had been deep in thought. Short, squarely built, rather stout, with moustache and large mutton chop whiskers of a red brown, and a faint floridity in face and dress, He impressed at first sight only by a certain truly British vulgarity. One felt that here was a hail-fellow, well-met man who liked lunch and dinner, went to Scarborough for his summer holidays, sat on his wife, took his daughters out in a boat, and was never sick. One felt that he went to church every Sunday morning, looked upwards as he moved through life disliked the unsuccessful, and expanded with his second glass of wine. But then a clear look into his well-clothed face and red-brown eyes would give the feeling, there's something fulvous here. He might be a bit too foxy. A third look brought the thought, he's certainly a bully. He was not a large creditor of old Haythorpe, with interest on the original, he calculated his claim at three hundred pounds, unredeemed shares in that old Ecuador mine. But he had waited for his money eight years, and could never imagine how it came about that he had been induced to wait so long. There had been, of course, for one who liked big pots, a certain glamour about the personality of old Heythorp. still a bit of a swell in shipping circles and a bit of an aristocrat in Liverpool. But during the last year Charles Vintner had realized that the old chap's star had definitely set. When that happens, of course, there is no more glamour, and the time has come to get your money. Weakness in oneself and others is despicable. Besides, he had food for thought, and descending the stairs he chewed it. He smelt a rat creatures for which both by nature and profession he had a nose. Through Bob Pillan, on whom he sometimes dwelt in connection with his younger daughter, he knew that old Pillan and old Haythorpe had been friends for thirty years and more. That, to an astute mind, suggested something behind this sale. The thought had already occurred to him when he read his copy of the report. A commission would be a breach of trust, of course, but there were ways of doing things. The old chap was devilish hard-pressed, and human nature was human nature. His lawyerish mind habitually put two and two together. The old fellow had deliberately appointed to meet his creditors again, just after the general meeting, which would decide the purchase, had said he might do something for them then. Had that no significance? In these circumstances Charles Ventnor had come to the meeting with eyes wide open and mouth tight closed, and he had watched. It was certainly remarkable that such an old and feeble man, with no neck at all, who looked indeed as if he might go off with apoplexy any moment, should actually say that he stood or fell by this purchase. Knowing that he fell, he would be a beggar. Why should the old chap be so keen on getting it through? It would do him personally no good unless—exactly!—he had left the meeting, therefore, secretly confident that old Haythorpe had got something out of this transaction which would enable him to make a substantial proposal to his creditors. So that when the old man had declared that he was going to make none, Something had turned sour in his heart, and he had said to himself, All right, you old rascal. You don't know C. V. The cavalier manner of that beggarly old rip, the defiant look of his deep little eyes, had put a polish on the rancor of one who prided himself on letting no man get the better of him. All that evening, seated on one side of the fire, while Mrs. Ventnor sat on the other, and the younger daughter played gounod's serenade on the violin he cogitated and now and again he smiled but not too much he did not see his way as yet but had little doubt that before long he would it would not be hard to knock that chipped old idol off his perch there was already a healthy feeling among the shareholders that he was past work and should be scrapped the old chap should find that Charles V. was not to be defied, that when he got his teeth into a thing, he did not let it go. By hook or crook, he would have the old man off his boards, or his debt out of him, as the price of leaving him alone. His life or his money, and the old fellow should determine which. With the memory of that defiance fresh within him, he almost hoped it would come to be the first and turning to Mrs. Ventnor, he said abruptly, "'Have a little dinner Friday week, and ask young Pillan and the curate.' He specified the curate, a teetotaler, because he had two daughters, and males and females must be paired, but he intended to pack him off after dinner to the drawing-room to discuss parish matters while he and Bob Pillan sat over their wine. What he expected to get out of the young man he did not as yet know. On the day of the dinner, before departing for the office, he had gone to his cellar. Would three bottles of Perrier-Jouet do the trick, or must he add one of the old Madeira? He decided to be on the safe side. A bottle or so of champagne went very little way with him personally, and young Pillin might be another. The Madeira, having done its work by turning the conversation into such an admirable channel, he had cut it short for fear young Pillan might drink the lot or get wind of the rat. And when his guests were gone, and his family had retired, he stood staring into the fire, putting together the pieces of the puzzle. Five or six thousand pounds. Six would be ten percent on sixty. exactly. Scriven's, young Pillin had said. But Crow and Donkin, not Scriven and Coles, were old Haythorpe's solicitors. What could that mean, save that the old man wanted to cover the tracks of a secret commission, and had handled the matter through solicitors who did not know the state of his affairs? But why Pillin's solicitors? With this sale just going through, it must look deucedly fishy to them, too. Was it all a mare's nest after all? In such circumstances, he himself would have taken the matter to a London firm who knew nothing of anybody. Puzzled, therefore, and rather disheartened, feeling too that touch of liver which was wont to follow his old Madeira, he went up to bed and woke his wife to ask her why the dickens they couldn't always have soup like that. Next day, he continued to brood over his puzzle, and no fresh light came. But having a matter on which his firm and Scriven's were in touch, he decided to go over in person and see if he could surprise something out of them. Feeling, from experience, that any really delicate matter would only be entrusted to the most responsible member of the firm, he had asked to see Scriven himself, and just as he had taken his hat to go, he said casually, "By the way, you do some business for old Mister Haythorpe, don't you?" Scriven raised his eyebrows a little, murmured, "Um, no," in exactly the tone Mister Ventnor himself used when he wished to imply that though he didn't, as a fact, do business, he probably soon would. He knew, therefore, that the answer was a true one, and nonplussed, he hazarded. Oh, I thought you did, in regard to a—a um, Mrs. Larne. This time he had certainly drawn blood of sorts, for down came Scriven's eyebrows, and he said, Mrs. Larn? We know a Mrs. Larne, but not in that connection. Why? Oh, young Pillin told me— Young Pillin? Why, it's his—a little pause, and then— Old Mr. Haythorpe's solicitors are Crow and Donkin, I believe." Mr. Vintner held out his hand. Yes, yes, he said. Good-bye. Glad to have got that matter settled up. And out he went, and down the street, important, smiling. By George! He had got it. It's his father, Scriven had been going to say. What a plant! Exactly! Oh, neat! Old Pillan had made the settlement direct, and the solicitors were in the dark. That disposed of his difficulty about them. No money had passed between Old Pillan and Old Haythorpe, not a penny. Oh, neat! But not neat enough for Charles Ventnor, who had that nose for rats. Then his smile died, and with a little chill he perceived that it was all based on supposition not quite good enough to go on. What, then? Somehow he must see this Mrs. Larne, or, better, old Pillan himself. The point to ascertain was whether she had any connection of her own with Pillan. Clearly young Pillan didn't know of it, for, according to him, old Haythorpe had made the settlement. By Jove! That old rascal was deep all the more satisfaction in proving that he was not as deep as C. V. To unmask the old cheat was already beginning to seem in the nature of a public service. But on what pretext could he visit Pillin? A subscription to the Wendyat almshouses. That would make him talk in self-defense, and he would take care not to press the request to the actual point of getting a subscription. He caused himself to be driven to the Pillan residence in Sefton Park. Ushered into a room on the ground floor, heated in American fashion, Mr. Ventnor unbuttoned his coat. A man of sanguine constitution, he found this hothouse atmosphere a little trying. And having sympathetically obtained Joe Pillan's reluctant refusal—quite so, one could not indefinitely extend one's subscription, even for the best of causes," he said gently, By the way, you know Mrs. Larne, don't you? The effect of that simple shot surpassed his highest hopes. Joe Pillan's face, never highly colored, turned a sort of gray. He opened his thin lips, shut them quickly, as birds do. And something seemed to pass with difficulty down his scraggy throat. The hollows, which nerve exhaustion delves in the cheeks of men whose cheekbones are not high, increased alarmingly. For a moment he looked deathly. Then, moistening his lips, he said Larn Larn N- No, I don't seem Mr. Ventnor, who had taken care to be drawing on his gloves, murmured, Oh, I thought your son knows her, a relation of old Haythorpe's, and he looked up. Joe Pillan had his handkerchief to his mouth. He coughed feebly, then, with more and more vigor, I'm in very poor health, he said, at last. I'm getting abroad at once. This cold's killing me. What name did you say? and he remained with his handkerchief against his teeth. Mr. Ventnor repeated, Larn, write stories. Joe Pillan muttered into his handkerchief, Ah! Ah! No! I—I—no! My son knows all sorts of people. I shall have to try Mentone. Are you going? Goodbye, bye Good-bye! I'm sorry, I ah, ah, cough, ah, ah, I'm very distressing, e- yes, my cough, ah, most distressing, e- yes." Out in the drive, Mr. Ventnor took a deep breath of the frosty air. Not much doubt now. The two names had worked like charms. This weakly old fellow would make a pretty witness, would simply crumple under cross-examination. What a contrast to that awry old sinner Haythorpe, whose brazenness nothing could affect. The rat was as large as life, and the only point was how to make the best use of it. Then, for his experience was wide, the possibility dawned on him that, after all, this Mrs. Larne might only have been old Pillin's mistress, or be his natural daughter, or have some other blackmailing hold on him any such connection would account for his agitation, for his denying her, for his son's ignorance. Only it wouldn't account for young Pillan saying that old Heythorp had made the settlement. He could only have got that from the woman herself. Still, to make absolutely sure, he had better try and see her. But how? It would never do to ask Bob Pillan for an introduction, after this interview with his father he would have to go on his own and chance it. Wrote stories, did she? Perhaps a newspaper would know her address, or the directory would have it. Not a common name. And hot on the scent he drove to a post-office. Yes, there it was, right enough. Larn, Mrs. R., 23, Millicent Villas. And thinking to himself, no time like the present, He turned in that direction. The job was delicate. He must be careful not to do anything which might compromise his power of making public use of his knowledge. Yes, ticklish. What he did now must have a proper legal bottom. Still, any way you looked at it, he had a right to investigate a fraud on himself as a shareholder of the Island Navigation Company and a fraud on himself as a creditor of old Haythorpe. Quite! But suppose this Mrs. Larne was really entangled with old Pillin and the settlement a mere reward of virtue, easy or otherwise. Well, in that case there be no secret commission to make public, and he needn't go further. So that, in either event, he would be all right. Only how to introduce himself. He might pretend he was a newspaper man, wanting a story. No, that wouldn't do. He must not represent that he was what he was not, in case he had afterwards to justify his actions publicly—always a difficult thing, if you were not careful. At that moment there came into his mind a question Bob Pillin had asked the other night. By the way, you can't borrow on a settlement, can you? Isn't there generally some clause against it? Had this woman been trying to borrow from him on that settlement? But at this moment he reached the house, and got out of his cab, still undecided, as to how he was going to work the oracle. Impudence, constitutional and professional, sustained him in saying to the little maid, Mrs. Larne at home? Say, Mr. Charles Ventner, will you? His quick-brown eyes took in the apparel of the passage which served for Hall, the deep blue paper on the walls, lilac-patterned curtains over the doors, the well-known print of a nude young woman looking over her shoulder, and he thought, hmm, distinctly tasty. They noted, too, a small brown-and-white dog cowering in terror at the very end of the passage, and he murmured affably, "'Fluffy! Come here, Fluffy!' till Carmen's teeth chattered in her head. "'Will you come in, sir?' Mr. Vintner ran his hand over his whiskers, and, entering a room, was impressed at once by its air of domesticity. On a sofa a handsome woman and a pretty young girl were surrounded by sewing apparatus and some white material. The young girl looked up, but the elder lady rose. Mister Ventnor said easily, "You know my young friend, Mister Robert Pillin, I think." The lady, whose bulk and bloom struck him to the point of admiration, murmured in a full, sweet drawl, "Oh, y- yes. Are you from Messrs Strivens?" With a swift reflection, as I thought, Mister Vintner answered. Uh, not exactly. I am a solicitor, though. Came just to ask about a certain settlement that Mr. Pillin tells me you're entitled under. Phyllis, dear?" Seeing the girl about to rise from underneath the white stuff, Mr. Ventnor said quickly, "'Pray, don't disturb yourself. Just a formality.' It had struck him at once that the lady would have to speak the truth in the presence of this third party. And he went on, Quite recent, I think. This will be your first interest on six thousand pounds. Is that right?" And at the limp assent of that rich, sweet voice he thought, Fine woman! What eyes! Thank you. That's quite enough. I can go to Scriven's for any detail. Nice young fellow, Bob Pillin, isn't he? And he saw the girl's chin tilt and Mrs. Larnes' full mouth curling in a smile. "'Delightful, young man. We're very fond of him.' And he proceeded, "'I'm quite an old friend of his. Have you known him long?' "'Oh, no! How long, Phyllis, since we met him at Gardy's? About a month. But he's so unaffected, quite at home with us. An- a nice fellow,' Mr. Vintner murmured. Very different from his father, isn't he? Is he? Ah, uh, We don't know his father. He's a shipowner, I think. Mr. Vintner rubbed his hands. Yes, he said. Just giving up. A warm man. Young Pillan's a lucky fellow. Only son. So you met him at old Mr. Haythorpe's? I know him, too. Relation of yours, I believe. Our dear Gardy, such a wonderful man. Mr. Ventnor echoed, "'Wonderful! regular old Roman!' "'Oh, but he's so kind!' Mrs. Larne lifted the white stuff. Look what he's given this naughty girl. Mr. Ventnor murmured, "'Charming! Charming! Bob Pillan said, I think, that Mr. Haythorpe was your settler.' One of those little clouds which visit the brows of women who have owed money in their time passed swiftly athwart Mrs. Larne's eyes. For a moment they seemed saying, Don't you want to know too much? Then they slid from under it. Won't you sit down, she said. You must forgive our being at work. Mr. Ventnor, who had need of sorting his impressions, shook his head. Thank you. I must be getting on. Then measure Scriven Ah, can—a mere formality good-bye, good-bye, Mrs. Larne. I'm sure the dress will be most becoming." And with memories of a too clear look from the girl's eyes, of a warm firm pressure from the woman's hand, Mr. Vintner backed towards the door and passed away just in time to avoid hearing in two voices, "'What a nice lawyer!' and "'What a horrid man!' Back in his cab, he continued to rub his hands. No, she didn't know old Pillin. That was certain. Not from her words, but from her face. She wanted to know him, or about him, anyway. She was trying to hook young Bob for that sprig of a girl. That was clear as mud. Mm, it would astonish his young friend to hear that he had called. Well, let it. And a curious mixture of emotions beset Mr. Ventnor. He saw the whole thing now so plainly, and really could not refrain from a certain admiration. The law had been properly diddled. There was nothing to prevent a man from settling money on a woman he had never seen, and so old Pillan's settlement could probably not be upset. But old Haythorpe could. It was neat, though, oh, neat, and that was a fine woman, remarkably. He had a sort of feeling that if only the settlement had been in danger, it might have been worth while to have made a bargain. A woman like that could have made it worth while. And he believed her quite capable of entertaining the proposition. Her eye! Pity, quite a pity. Mrs. Ventnor was not a wife who satisfied every aspiration. But alas, the settlement was safe. This balking of the sentiment of love whipped up, if anything, the longing for justice in Mr. Ventnor. That old chap should feel his teeth now. As a piece of investigation, it was not so bad, not so bad at all. He had had a bit of luck, of course—no, not luck, just that knack of doing the right thing at the right moment, which marks a real genius for affairs. But getting into his train to return to Mrs. Ventnor, he thought a woman like that would have been—and he sighed. With a neatly written check for fifty pounds in his pocket, Bob Pillin turned in at twenty-three Millicent Villas on the afternoon after Mr. Ventnor's visit. Chivalry had won the day, and he rang the bell with an elation which astonished him for he knew he was doing a soft thing. Mrs. Lorne is out, sir. Miss Phyllis is at home. His heart leaped. Oh, I'm sorry. I wondered if she'd see me. The little maid answered, I think she's been washing her hair, sir, but it may be dry by now. I'll see. Bob Pillin stood stock-still beneath the young woman on the wall. He could scarcely breathe. If her hair were not dry, how awful!" But suddenly he heard floating down a clear but smothered me and other words which he could not catch. The little maid came running down. "'Miss Phyllis says, sir, she'll be with you in a jiffy, and I was to tell you that Master Jock is loose, sir.' Bob Pillan answered, "'Thanks,' and passed into the drawing-room. He went to the bureau, took an envelope, enclosed the cheque, and addressing it Mrs. Larne, replaced it in his pocket. Then he crossed over to the mirror. Never till this last month had he really doubted his own face, but now he wanted for it things he had never wanted. It had too much flesh and colour. It did not reflect his passion. This was a handicap. With a narrow white piping round his waistcoat opening, and a buttonhole of tuberoses, he had tried to repair its deficiencies. But do what he would, he was never easy about himself nowadays, never up to that pitch which would make him confident in her presence. And until this month, to lack confidence had never been his wont. A clear, high, mocking voice said, Oh! Conceited young man!" In spinning round he saw Phyllis in the doorway. Her light brown hair was fluffed out on her shoulders, so that he felt a kind of fainting sweet sensation, and murmured inarticulately, "'Oh, I say! How how jolly!' "'Locks! It's awful! Have you come to see Mother?' Balanced between fear and daring, Conscious of a scent of hay and verbena and chamomile, Bob Pillin stammered, y- uh, y- yes I'm glad she's not in, though." Her laugh seemed to him terribly unfeeling. Uh, "Oh, don't be foolish. Sit down. Isn't washing one's head awful?" Bob Pillin answered feebly, "Of course I haven't much experience." Her mouth opened. "Oh." you are, aren't you?" and he thought desperately, Dare I? Oughtn't I? Couldn't I somehow take her hand, or put my arm round her, or or something? Instead he sat very rigid at his end of the sofa, while she sat lax and lissome at the other, and one of those crises of paralysis which beset would-be lovers fixed him to the soul. Sometimes during this last month memories of a past existence, when chaff and even kisses came readily to the lips, and girls were fair game, would make him think, is she really such an innocent? Doesn't she really want me to kiss her? Alas! such intrusions lasted but a moment before a blast of awe and chivalry withered them and a strange and tragic delicacy, like nothing he had ever known, resumed its sway. And suddenly he heard her say, "'Why do you know such awful men?' "'What?' "'I don't know any awful men.' "'Oh, yes, you do. One came here yesterday. He had whiskers, and he was awful.' "'Whiskers?' his soul revolted in disclaimer. I believe I know only one man with whiskers, a lawyer. Yes, that was him, a perfectly horrid man. Mother didn't mind him, but I thought he was a beast. Ventnor came here. How d'you mean? He did, about some business of yours too. Her face had clouded over. Bob Pillin had of late been harassed by the still-born beginning of a poem, I rode upon my way and saw a maid who watched me from the door. It never grew longer, and was prompted by the feeling that her face was like an April day. The cloud which came on it now was like an April cloud, as if a bright shower of rain must follow. Brushing aside the two distressful lines, he said, look here, Miss Larn. Phyllis, look here. All right, I'm looking. What does it mean? How how did he come? What did he say?" She shook her head, and her hair quivered. The scent of chamomile, verbena, hay was wafted. Then, looking at her lap, she muttered, "I I wish you wouldn't. I wish Mother wouldn't. I hate it. Oh! Money! Beastly! Beastly!" And a tearful sigh shivered itself into Bob Pillan's reddening ears. I, I say, to, don't, and do tell me, be, be, because—oh, you know—I don't—I don't know anything at all. I, I never—Phyllis looked at him. Don't tell fibs. You know Mother's borrowing money from you, and it's hateful. A desire to lie roundly, a sense of the check in his pocket, a feeling of injustice, the emotion of pity, and a confused and black astonishment about Ventnor, caused Bob Pillin to stammer, "Well, I'm," <sensitivity> and to miss the look which Phyllis gave him through her lashes, a look saying, "Ah, that's better." I am damned. <Being I'm>... <sandwich> Look here. Do you mean to say that Ventnor came here about my lending money? I never said a word to him. There. You see? You are lending." He clutched his hair. We've got to have this out, he added. Not by the roots. Oh, you do look funny. I've never seen you with your hair untidy. Oh! Oh! Bob Pillin rose and paced the room. In the midst of his emotion he could not help seeing himself sidelong in the mirror, and on pretext of holding his head in both his hands, tried earnestly to restore his hair. Then coming to a halt he said, "'Suppose I am lending money to your mother. What does it matter? It's only till quarter-day. Anybody might want money.' Phyllis did not raise her face. "'Why are you lending it?' Because—because—why shouldn't I?" And diving suddenly, he seized her hands. She wrenched them free, and with the emotion of despair Bob Pillin took out the envelope. "'If you like,' he said, "'I'll tear this up. I don't want to lend it if you don't want me to. But I I I thought—I thought—' It was for her alone he had been going to lend this money. Phyllis murmured through her hair, Yes, you thought that that, that I—oh, that's so hateful. Apprehension pierced his mind. Oh, never—I never—I swear I never— Yes, you did. You thought I wanted you to lend it. She jumped up and brushed past him into the window so she thought she was being used as a decoy. That was awful, especially since it was true. He knew well enough that Mrs. Larn was working his admiration for her daughter for all that it was worth. And he said with simple fervour, What rot! It produced no effect, and at his wit's end he almost shouted, Look, Phyllis, if you don't want me to, here goes. Phyllis turned. Tearing the envelope across, he threw the bits into the fire. "'There it is,' he said. Her eyes grew round. She said in an awed voice, "'Oh!' In a sort of agony of honesty, he said, "'It was only a check. Now you've got your way.' Staring at the fire, she answered slowly, "'I expect you'd better go before mother comes.' Bob Pillan's mouth fell afar. He secretly agreed, but the idea of sacrificing a moment alone with her was intolerable, and he said heartily, No, I shall stick it. Phyllis sneezed. My hair isn't a bit dry, and she sat down on the fender with her back to the fire. A certain spirituality had come into Bob Pillan's face if only he could get that wheeze off. Phyllis is my only joy, or even, Phyllis, do you, won't you, mayn't I? But nothing came, nothing. And suddenly she said, oh, don't breathe so loud, it's awful. Breathe? I wasn't. You were, just like Carmen when she's dreaming. He had walked three steps towards the door before he thought, What does it matter? I can stand anything from her, and walked the three steps back again. She said softly, Poor young man. He answered gloomily, I suppose you realize that this may be the last time you'll see me. Why? I thought you were going to take us to the theatre. I don't know whether your mother will, after—' Phyllis gave a little clear laugh. "'You don't know my mother. Nothing makes any difference to her.' And Bob Pillin muttered, "'I see.' He did not, but it was of no consequence. Then the thought of Ventnor again ousted all others. What on earth? How on earth? He searched his mind for what he could possibly have said the other night. Surely he had not asked him to do anything, certainly not given him their address. There was something very odd about it that had jolly well got to be cleared up. And he said, Are you sure the name of that Johnny who came here yesterday was Ventnor? Phyllis nodded. And he was short and had whiskers? Yes red, and red eyes." He murmured reluctantly, "'Must be him. Jolly good Cheek! I simply can't understand. I shall go and see him. How on earth did he know your address?' "'I expect you gave it him.' "'I did not. I won't have you thinking me a squirt.' Phyllis jumped up. "'Oh, Locks, here's mother.' Mrs. Larne was coming up the garden. Bob Pillin made for the door. Goodbye, he said. I'm going. But Mrs. Larne was already in the hall. Enveloping him in fur and her rich personality, she drew him with her into the drawing room, where the back window was open, and Phyllis gone. I hope, she said, those naughty children have been making you comfortable. That nice lawyer of yours came yesterday. He seemed quite satisfied." Very red above his collar, Bob Pillan stammered, "'I never told him to. He isn't my lawyer. I don't know what it means.' Mrs. Lorne smiled. "'My dear boy, it's all right. You needn't be so squeamish. I want it to be quite on a business footing.' Restraining a fearful inclination to blurt out, it's not going to be on any footing," Bob Pillan murmured. "'I must go. I'm late. And uh, when will you be able—oh, I'll, I'll send. I'll write. Good-bye.' And suddenly he found that Mrs. Lorne had him by the lapel of his coat. The scent of violets and fur was overpowering, and the thought flashed through him. I believe she only wanted to take money off old Joseph in the Bible. I can't leave my coat in her hands. What shall I do?" Mrs. Larne was murmuring, "'It would be so sweet of you if you could manage it uh, to-day,' and her hand slid over his chest. "'Oh, you have brought your check-book. What a nice boy!' Bob Pillin took it out in desperation and, sitting down at the bureau, wrote a check similar to that which he had torn and burned. A warm kiss lighted on his eyebrow. His head was pressed for a moment to a furry bosom. A hand took the check. A voice said, How delightful! And a sigh immersed him in a bath of perfume. Backing to the door, he gasped, "Uh, Don't mention it and don't tell Phyllis, please. Good-bye." Once through the garden gate he thought, by gum, I've done it now. That Phyllis should know about it at all. That beast Ventnor." His face grew almost grim. He would go and see what that meant anyway. Mr. Ventnor had not left his office when his young friend's card was brought to him. Tempted for a moment to deny his own presence, he thought, no, what's the good? Bound to see him some time. If he had not exactly courage, he had that peculiar blend of self-confidence and insensibility which must needs distinguish those who follow the law. Nor did he ever forget that he was in the right. Show him in, he said. He would be quite bland that young Pillan might whistle for an explanation. He was still tormented, too, by the memory of rich curves and moving lips, and the possibilities of better acquaintanceship. While shaking the young man's hand, his quick and fulvous eye detected at once the discomposure behind that mask of cheek and collar and relapsing into one of those swivel chairs which give one an advantage over men more statically seated he said you look pretty bobbish anything i can do for you bob pillin in the fixed chair of the consultor nursed his bowler on his knee well yes there is i've just been to see mrs larne mr ventnor did not flinch ah nice woman pretty daughter, too. And into those words he put a certain meaning. He never waited to be bullied. Bob Pillin felt the pressure of his blood increasing. Look here, Ventnor, he said, I want an explanation. But well, what of? Why, of your going there, and using my name, and God knows what. Mr. Ventnor gave his chair two little twiddles before he said, Well, you won't get it. Bob Pillin remained for a moment taken aback, and then he muttered resolutely, "'It's not the conduct of a gentleman.' Every man has his illusions, and no man likes them disturbed. The gingery tint underlying Mr. Ventnor's coloring overlaid it. Even the whites of his eyes grew red. "'Oh,' he said, "'indeed. You mind your own business, will you? It is my business.' very much so. You made use of my name, and I don't choose—the devil you don't. Now I tell you what—Mr. Ventnor leaned forward—you'd better hold your tongue and not exasperate me. I'm a good-tempered man, but I don't want your impudence." Clenching his bowler hat, and only kept in his seat by that sense of something behind, Bob Pillan ejaculated, "Impudence!" that's good, after what you did. Look here, why did you? It's so extraordinary." Mr. Ventnor answered, "'Oh, is it? You wait a bit, my friend." Still more moved by the mystery of this affair, Bob Pillan could only mutter, "'I never gave you their address. We were only talking about old Haythorpe.' And at the smile which spread between Mr. Ventnor's whiskers he jumped up, crying, "'It's not the thing, and you're not going to put me off. I insist on an explanation.' Mr. Ventnor leaned back, crossing his stout legs, joining the tips of his thick fingers. In this attitude he was always self-possessed. "'You do, do you?' "'Yes. You must have had some reason.' Mr. Ventnor gazed up at him. I'll give you a piece of advice, young cock, and charge you nothing for it, too. Ask no questions, and you'll be told no lies. And here's another. Go away before you forget yourself again." The natural stolidity of Bob Pillan's face was only just proof against this speech. He said thickly, "'If you go there again and use my name, I'll—well, "'It's lucky for you you're not my age. Anyway, I'll relieve you of my acquaintanceship in future. Good evening.' And he went to the door. Mr. Ventner had risen. "'Very well,' he said loudly. "'Good riddance. You wait and see which boot the leg is on.' But Bob Pillan was gone, leaving the lawyer with a very red face, a very angry heart, and a vague sense of disorder in his speech. Not only Bob Pillin, but his tender aspirations had all left him. He no longer dallied with the memory of Mrs. Larne, but, like a man and a Briton, thought only of how to get his own back and punish evildoers. The atrocious words of this young friend, It's not the conduct of a gentleman, festered in the heart of one who was made gentle not merely by nature but by act of Parliament. And he registered a solemn vow to wipe the insult out, if not with blood, with verjuice. It was his duty, and they should damned well see him do it. End of part three.